WDBM East Lansing. The impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Welcome, I'm your host, Quinn Hoffman. Tonight on the show, we talk to Meredith Gore about the progression of the wolf hunt in Michigan. Then we sit down with Gabriel Biber to talk about a local homeless shelter that works to keep families together. Later, we talk with Noah Filipiak about the Lansing for Haiti 5K run. All that and more is coming up. You're listening to Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. in Michigan has been a hot topic for the past few years. Ever since the wolf population has been large enough to hunt, Michigan has had a hard time deciding what's best to do. To help clear up the situation for me, I'm joined by Meredith Gore over the phone. Meredith, how are you today? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. So what your position, you, you are a, a professor in fisheries and wildlife? I'm an associate professor in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife and also School of Criminal Justice. All right. So I called you on today to have a little discussion about the Michigan wolf hunt. There's been uh, a lot of drama around this area um, recently. Last November, there was a vote, and we voted to shut things down, essentially, is my understanding. Yes. You, so there were two um, referenda on the November 2014 ballot, and the first one um, essentially asked about whether or not there should be wolf hunting in the state of Michigan, and the second one focused on the process by which decisions about wolf hunting and hunting of other game species should be made. And we voted to kind of, uh, yeah, turn those turn those things down as far as uh, – allowing a hunt in 2014. Is that right? Yes. Both referenda were uh, uh, voted voted against. Okay. And was last year, in 2013, did we have a wolf hunt? We did. 2013 was the um, first wolf hunt in the state of Michigan since wolves have been, uh, or since wolves were delisted from the Endangered Species Act. Okay. So this whole endangered species thing. In 2013, we allowed a wolf hunt what was the population like then, and how how did the wolf hunt really affect it? Sure. Well, my my first comment is that I'm a conservation social scientist, so I do a lot of work studying the social science or human dimension side of wolf management. So I'm not a wolf biologist per se, but I do get to work with a lot of them. Um, and so the wolf population in Michigan, the number of animals, has been monitored um, since, uh, the 1960s when wolves were listed as an endangered species in Michigan. They were uh, listed federally as an endangered species in the 70s. Um, and then um, in 2012, they were delisted. And then in 2013, we had a wolf hunt. 
And then in 2014, with this ballot initiative, um, the wolf hunt was was um, opposed. So the that's kind of the political history of of wolves over the past few decades. And so the number of wolves that are in Michigan have been. Um, studied since that time, and so I believe the number right now is approximately 700 in the in the Upper Peninsula, and I believe the number was 43 wolves were taken in the 2013 hunt. So then, uh, this year that um, in in 2014 for November, um, there was voted to be no hunt. Um, do you do you have any personal speculation as to why? the majority of Michigan uh, decided against it this year? No, I don't. Um, I am really interested or sort of what, what my area of expertise is trying to um, characterize different attitudes and beliefs about wildlife and how those attitudes and beliefs might um, contribute to why people either support or oppose natural resource management. Um, so some of the work that I've been doing as of late looks at the role of uh, knowledge and power in wildlife management and how knowledge and power may have influenced why people voted either for or against one of the ballot initiatives, like why people might disagree about uh, wolf management, why there might be conflict. And then I'm also uh, really interested in understanding um, what the characteristics of certain groups are that either oppose or support wildlife management, uh, either like wolf hunting or opposing wolf hunting. Okay, so bring me into this world a little bit here. Uh, <laughs> what what kinds of things are you finding? What kinds of theories or things are you looking into? So one of the one of the questions that I've been asking as of late, uh, along with a former PhD student of mine, Michelle Lute, is why controversy can and persist in wolf management, and what is the role of um, power or like control authority over decisions about managing wolves, and then how does knowledge, like scientific knowledge or traditional knowledge, just like from experience, and how do those um, how does knowledge and power interact? And we found a number of really interesting findings, I think, from this study where we did these interviews with different stakeholder groups all around the state in um, summer of 2012. So this was before um, the wolf hunt. And I think some of the really um, interesting things that we found is that politics and science are often viewed as being competing and not complementary in decision-making. Um, even though there might be agreement about who a particular decision maker should be, there's still this idea among a lot of the people that I've had a chance to talk to that politics and science are competing when it comes to wildlife management. Um, and that we don't have adequate information when it comes to science. Um, there can be a prevalence of misinformation out there and also um, a desire for more sound science out there. Um, another thing that we have found is that there can be a lot of distrust um, between agencies that manage wildlife and the legislature. And there's also can be mistrust between public, the public stakeholders and, and decision makers. So it's important to know all that information because with that kind of insight about the social science side of things, we can work to better overcome conflict and implement more effective wildlife management for wolves and other species. Some impressions might be that science and politics should be working together to, you know, find, you know, the, the best possible solution for these kinds of things. Um, are you maybe 
looking into if they're not working together or if they're working against each other, or are you kind of more talking about having like a miscommunication um, when it comes to things like the wolf hunt? Yeah, so that's really interesting. I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I think that there might be studies sort of where a researcher might be looking from the outside in and saying, oh, what's how do politics and science interact? What my research has focused on is how do people that are actually affected by wolf management think, what do they think about the situation? So it's kind of thinking about their perceptions because their perceptions are their reality. Um, and I think that they, the people that I have interviewed at least, um, see a tension between local knowledge and scientific knowledge. And that may be because of a lack of communication or a, uh, it may be because of a lack of communication um, or it may be because Sometimes there's the perception that there are special interests involved um, in politics, um, and some people think that politics have, has no place in science um, or science policy. Um, and so if you can think about science and politics and think about their tension, uh, think about this tension, the assumptions that we make about the tension, then maybe we can try to overcome them and decrease the negative dimensions of conflict in wildlife management. So in 2014, um, we voted no wolf hunt. What? How? How do you think this is going going to affect the wolf population or even public opinion of this this? Subject? I think that's a really good question. Um, it's not my area of expertise um, to speculate how um, how the wolf population is going to respond. Um, I think that uh, well, I know that the Michigan Department of Natural Resources. Um, is actively monitoring the population of wolves. And so we do have wolves that are um, killed legally because they're involved in conflict, either with livestock or other, um, you know, maybe agricultural or human safety issues. So we do have a proportion of wolves that are killed every year um, legally because of conflict with, with humans. And so, um, you know, presumably that's going to continue. But I think that there's a real opportunity for everyone that is interested in wolves and wolf management in Michigan to um, think about how we can move forward in the future and have not only effective management for the wolves, but also effective management for the people that care about wolves. I guess next year it, it opens up the possibility for another hunt. Right. You know, that's a really interesting question. I think that the State Department of Natural Resources and the Natural Resource Commission has an opportunity to revisit um, the the regulations associated with wolf management, the way that they engage different stakeholders in wolf management decision making. And so I think that um, time will tell what kind of opportunities are going to face wolves in the future. And I, I can't speak to whether or not that's going to include hunting, but the, the referenda were clear, um, at least for now. Uh, are you saying that there might could be like a possibility of changing how we decide uh, what when a wolf hunt is appropriate? Uh, you know, possibly putting an end to voting every year. Um, well, not really. I guess what I'm saying is that you know the the state has an active the Department of Natural Resources has an active history of engaging stakeholders in decision making processes. Like you know, um, what are some of the issues that stakeholders really care about when it comes to wolves? Um, for example, one issue that I have heard or I have seen written up in in a report is this idea of wolf-dog hybrids um, when wolves and dogs 
uh, breed. And I don't really hear anyone talking about that. So it's an issue that someone identified in the past as being important to think about in Michigan, but it definitely doesn't seem to be something that is um, central to people's radar screens today. So with stakeholder engagement, maybe the agency will learn new things about what's on people's radar screen. So that, I think, has an opportunity to change. Um, and certainly conversations about reducing conflicts with wolves are going to continue. But the rule of hunting, I can't speak to that. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, calling in. Yeah, thanks. Up next, the U.S. National Guard has turned to wind power as an energy solution. Impact reporter Stephen Rich keeps us informed. Windy days at training camp might provide some advantages in the near future. The Michigan National Guard has pledged $1.5 million for the construction of wind machines at Camp Grayling and Fort Custer, and these machines are not your traditional wind turbines. Stephen Hill, the chief operating officer of the company that makes the turbines, explains how this shape might increase the machine's performance. What we're able to do is decrease capital cost. Uh, when you put the turbine on the ground, uh, you're going to have a decrease in your operations and maintenance cost. And because we go after an increase in velocity, hence our product name, Involux, versus an increase in blade diameter, uh, we're able to produce more power uh, than what you can get with traditional wind systems. And the machines also solve one problem that you might not think wind machines would have. Because the turbine is on the ground and it's generally contained, uh, we're not going to kill birds or bats or have the impacts. As a matter of fact, the current system that we have right out of our offices uh, in uh, uh, Minnesota, uh, there's birds and pigeons uh, that are on top of our system. The project is part of the Michigan National Guard's goal to increase its use of renewable energy to 25% by the year 2020. And Hill is personally very excited about the opportunity to work with the Michigan National Guard. I've spent uh, 30 years uh, with the Army uh, in the Army Corps of Engineer business. Uh, I've deployed in a combat environment in uh, many different locations. Most recently was as I was ready to deport the military in Iraq. And energy is a national security issue. It really is. And uh, I believe anything that can be done to solve uh, national energy challenges uh, will improve the security in this country. You know, if all of a sudden the grid goes down or if there's some type of threat to this country, uh, you know, you really look to your military uh, to have redundant systems, backup systems. And, uh, you know, again, the, the military uh, is known to provide leadership. Now, you may not think of the National Guard being at the forefront of renewable energy technology, but Hill believes that they'll play a strong role in its continued development. Uh, the good thing about uh, the military, and especially with the National Guard, is they're innovators. They're pioneers. Uh, they're passionate about changing the world to make improvements. We'll hear more about this project next February or March, and Hill said we could see completed machines by the end of next year. For Impact News, I'm Stephen Rich. Oh,
Haven House is a local homeless shelter that's a little out of the ordinary. Gabriel Bibers joins me in the studio to tell me more about it. You're listening to Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. Gabriel Bibers with us right now, a development director at Haven House. Gabe, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Quinn? I'm excellent. Um, so you're involved with Haven House, mm-hmm. uh, which is a homeless shelter, but there's something a little bit more specific about it. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. Haven House is, we're the the homeless shelter in East Lansing, and we're the only homeless shelter dedicated to families in the whole greater Lansing area. So we're we're the shelter where people come if they've got kids. And being so close to MSU, we've got a huge connection with MSU as far as volunteers and partnerships and so forth. All right, so family homelessness specifically, what's uh, what's the idea with targeting that specifically? It's an important question. You know, homelessness can happen to anyone at any time. You miss rent, um, you know, get an illness, anything can happen that puts you in a homeless situation. And the system is really designed for either men or women and children. The system really splits you up. So either you're a male, 13 or over, or you're a female, or you know, a boy or girl under 12 and under. We're the only shelter that can keep families together. So if you're a dad with a daughter, we're the only shelter that can keep you together. If you're a mom with a teenage son, same thing, we're the only, only shelter that can keep you together. Or if you're a mom and a dad together who've got one or more kids, same thing. We're the only shelter that can put all of those people together, keep the family unit together while they're in shelter. Okay, and by system, you're referring to other shelters, anywhere people can go for help? Yeah, nationally, and you know, especially around here in Lansing and in Michigan, really the shelters were set up originally you know, for that single adult male homeless population or for the mom and kid situation. But if you kind of fall between the cracks, if you're a single dad you know, with, who's got kids or if you're a, a couple that's got kids, um, a lot of the shelters will say, sorry, we can't take you. you know, we can't put um, you know, the adult males together with the young girls, et cetera. So we're the shelter that provides you know, specific room for the family. A family gets its own room, and then there's communal living situation. But the other thing that really sets us apart is we're helping families find permanent homes. So instead of just being sort of like a night off the street, we really get families on a permanent track to find their own housing. So the the impact the station here we actually have a somewhat of a relationship with uh, Haven House mm-hmm. we have a a few employees here that are consistent volunteers um, and I myself I live in a co-op that's right next door and so I've noticed you know like you have a huge playset um, yeah kind of like a little uh, park there for them uh, yeah. you know, where where does that come from that's that's an awesome observation you know. Um, very recently, we had a, a local teen who was doing his Eagle Scout project, and he replaced our old playground with a whole brand new playground. And he raised the money, got the volunteers together, you know, he put it all together, did everything. Um, part of what we do is, you know, when families are in shelter, the parents are working hard to find their own permanent housing. We want to give the kids the best, you know, most positive experience while they're in shelter. So there's this just huge network going on of people that want to volunteer their time, you know, maybe come in and help out, supervise the playground for a little while or do some indoor activities. And so it's really about providing that quality experience for the kids while they're at Haven House. And so, you know, when you look at our shelter, it does kind of look like a playground. It looks like a nice, happy place to be, which, you know, is really about providing that all-around, um, you know, experience, not just for the families to find a new home, but while they're in transition to have, you know, as, as good a time as possible. So you, you that was a, a volunteer work there mm-hmm. with the Eagle Scout. Yeah. Is most of the work done at Haven House volunteer work? Are there paid positions? You know, we've got about a dozen employees that are working part and full time, doing everything from case management with the families to administration. But 
way beyond that is the volunteer time. You know, we've got way more volunteer hours than staff hours, and that's everything from working in the office, doing some high-functioning stuff like answering phones and talking to clients, to maybe just dropping in for an hour or two, you know, doing some playtime. We've got a lot of MSU groups that come in and do things, either just a, a one-off opportunity, um, or they might come in repeatedly. So if you check out our website, it's www.havenhouseel.org. Very quick and easy. Click on volunteer. You know, you can get involved in a volunteer opportunity in just a few seconds. So that you mentioned earlier that there were um, you went to lengths to uh, secure these families in more permanent homes. Yeah. Uh, what kind of lengths do you go to 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 get these people in these homes, or uh, does it involve getting them work too? Yeah, definitely. And it's really the families doing the work. You know, every family is different. Some families come into shelter and they think, you know, we never thought we'd be homeless. We've got two jobs. We, we feel pretty stable. Something happened. You know, maybe someone went to the hospital or someone lost a job. Who knows what it was. But in other situations, you get families that are really struggling. You know, it's been a long time since they've made ends meet. So um, for some families, it's about getting more income and about, you know, increasing their income stream. But for every family, it's about planning the budget. So the core of what we do is we sit down with families and we figure out what are you spending money on, where can you cut down your expenses, and how can you bring in more money. And then once that's figured out, you figure out, okay, well, what's your budget for housing? How much can you afford to spend on rent? And so once we help a family figure that out, they're really the ones doing the legwork, seeking housing every day, trying to find something within that budget. So it's kind of a team effort. Um, we're coaching the families, and they're really doing the effort there. Awesome. Um, have you ever run into any issues with this? How well does this kind of strategy work? I would say it works about two-thirds of the time. Um, we typically have about 150 families come through the shelter every year, and about 100 of those find permanent housing through our program. And you know the rest of them may either choose to go and stay with a family member, or they may choose, you know, to uh, sign a lease that's a little bit out of their budget. You know, our goal is really to make sure that you're spending less than you're making on your housing so that you have some money left over to kind of move on into the future. What's the what's the size of Haven House? It's pretty intimate. We've got about 30 people there staying there uh, in temporary shelter, and that's typically about oh, maybe 20 kids and 10 adults. And so we've got seven bedrooms, and what happens is a family will basically get a room to themselves. And so the family's got a bedroom, and then they have shared space that they use, you know, a shared kitchen and dining room and some living room and space like that. So um, we've got a, you know, top floor with seven bedrooms. We've got um, a main floor with lots of different space, like living room, dining room, kitchen, and we've got an office. So we're not huge, and really what we pride ourselves on is our length of stay. So families stay with us for an average of 17 and a half days. And what that means is within less than three weeks, on average, a family has found a place of their own, they've moved on, and then we've got another room open to take a family off the street. So we're not huge, but, you know, seven bedrooms and we're serving 150 families a year. So that means that families are really doing what it takes to go from the shelter to their own place. Is it ever really, like, tight on capacity there? Do you, do you often have a lot of vacancies, or is it always a, kind of a struggle to get all the families you need in there? Um, we're almost always full which is some people don't realize that, but, you know, serving 150 families a year, we're turning away possibly as many as 1,000. Um, you know, individuals will call and say, um, you know, do you have space? And we'll say, well, we're full right now. And if someone moves out between now and tonight, be the first person to call, you know, tonight or tomorrow morning. So it's a constant um, self-selection process. You know, families that need help need to call constantly. And when a space opens up, you know, we'll figure out, are we the right shelter for you, um, you know, are you willing to come in and accept our rules, be drug and alcohol free while you stay with us, et cetera, you know, do the work that it takes. And when families agree to that, overwhelmingly the outcome is good. So another thing that sets us apart, we have a follow-up program. 
and we call it Partners in Progress. So once a family moves into their own place, they've signed a lease, we stay in touch with them for six months to a year, and we want to know, you know, did this really work out? Were you really able to stay in this place, or was it just like, hey, you moved out and we forgot about you? So what we found is more than 90% of families that go through our entire program end up staying in their place. So the website was, uh, I noticed, was uh, Haven House EL yeah. for, for East Lansing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that are there Haven Houses in other, is this a bigger organization? Are there Haven Houses in other areas of the... We are only here in East Lansing as Haven House. Um, it's a popular name. So if you Google Haven House, you know you'll get animal shelters, homeless shelters, all kinds of things all over the country. Um, we are totally independent nonprofit. We got started by East Lansing community members back in 1983. And so it was really people here in East Lansing, you know, a strong partnership, you know, with the the residents, with the students, with the city from the very beginning, and lots of local organizations. And so over time, over the last 30 years, you know, we've remained basically an East Lansing organization, but we serve a lot of families from all over, Hazlitt, Okemos, Holt, you know, Lansing, you name it. East Lansing seems kind of like a strange place to put this, considering the neighboring areas like Lansing, yeah, which seems to be a lot more, um, you know, fallen on hard times um mm-hmm. kind of a uh, city so why why is the location for this haven house in east lansing well back in 83 you know there was um sort of a shelter soup kitchen that was in existence and after a while they folded and so basically community members came together and said you know what um even though you know maybe compared to some of the some of the surrounding areas compared to lansing we seem a little bit more affluent there was there was that need you know there were people that that were having trouble either feeding their family or making ends meet so when when that got going, when Haven House you know really got started, it was smaller. It was in a smaller house, and over time it grew. And what we found is we're right next to the East Lansing Post Office. We're at the corner of Saginaw and Abbott, major intersection. You know we're just minutes from Lansing, major bus routes, and it's really a good crossroads. So we do get this huge influx of support. You know donors from East Lansing, volunteers from MSU, and we're very accessible to folks living in in the city of Lansing. We, what we found is actually almost all of our residents end up moving to the city of Lansing, putting their kids into the Lansing School District. But we do get a lot of folks that, hey, you know, I've got kids in middle school in Hazlitt or in elementary school in East Lansing, and I'm in this this position. So um, even though it might not be what you picture when you think, you know, homeless, and you might think someone on the streets, you know, over in the city of Lansing, it's it's really a widespread problem. You know, everyone knows about the foreclosure issues and, you know, problems keeping up with mortgages. A lot of families over the last few years were really riding that fine line of, you know, appearances look like, hey, you know, I go to work and my kids go to school, but really, you know, am I paying the rent? Am I on the street or am I in a home? You know, you don't always know kind of what your, what situation your neighbor's in. So um, we're all pretty pretty tightly knit here in the area, and, and we serve the whole area, even though we're based here in East Lansing. Does the house take uh, donations of any kind? Yeah, we do. Um, one of the easiest ways to donate, you know, your money is online, havenhouseel.org, and volunteering your time and giving your time is another way to do it. Um, we also take a lot of urgent needs, so that could be anything from household cleaning products, other supplies, and havenhouseel.org has a list of our urgent needs. So we're open 365 days a year. You know, if you're ever right there close to the East Lansing Post Office on Abbott Road, just stop in. We're open 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., 365 days a year. One of the things we always need, though, is just people to come in and share their interests with us and share their skills and passions because no matter what you're into, we can use you. You know, you might be good at fixing stuff. You might be creative. You might be artistic. You might just have a certain talent, or you might just be willing to do a boring task. Whatever it is, you know, we've got a ton of things that need to be done there. So it doesn't always have to be a financial contribution. 
Yeah, and so then the volunteers, like you just mentioned, they can do all sorts of things. What what are the what are the typical duties of volunteers who volunteer there now? You know, some of the most popular things are doing things like kids' activities or making dinner. That's something you can just do for an hour or two, one time, kind of see if you like it. You know, make a big difference, but not make a huge you know commitment of your time. Folks that take a step further tend to get trained to work in our office. That involves answering the phone when people are calling for shelter. So it's talking to them and figuring out, you know, are you eligible to stay here? What's your situation? Uh, a little bit more higher level kind of functioning. And then there's all sorts of other things, you know, special projects, um, painting murals, things like that that people come up with. So if someone has an idea, we always encourage them, contact us, let us know what you're thinking, and we'll we'll fit you in. All right, and to uh, wrap this up, when I did stop in to, uh, you know, contact you guys about this, I noticed that there were some bigger common areas in there. I, th- I think I saw there were some kids playing with what seems like, you know, new kind of Christmas holiday toys. Yeah. Uh, what did you guys do for the holiday season? Uh, it's always a very busy time of year, and, you know, donors get very generous around the holidays, and that helps us carry through into the new year. But especially around the holidays, what we do, we offer an adopt-a-family program. So instead of just having to write a check or maybe buy a toy or something and give it, what we do is we find out from our families, what do you really need and what do your kids really want? And it might be certain clothes they need for school or it might be a certain toy that they're really liking. Um, but donors can go out and actually shop and know that they're getting something that a family really needs or that a kid really wants for the holidays. Um, there's also you know, just a big outpouring of volunteering and donating that happens this time of year. So um, it's really an important time of year for us. But as we turn to January, there's a couple things. We've got a pancake championship event coming up. This is where local celebrities are going to be flipping pancakes, serving a pancake breakfast, and kind of competing in ridiculous ways to get your attention. Um, giant mounds of whipped cream, cherries on top, etc. Um, another cool thing that comes up in February is our Have a Heart campaign. We have a lot of participation through MSU groups, um, East Lansing businesses, and uh, the women's basketball coach Susie Merchant as our honorary spokesperson for that. So check out the website, havenhouseel.org, if you're interested in any of those. You know, from holiday time all the way through to the new year, um, and beyond, you know, we really keep busy with a lot of opportunities. All right, awesome. Thanks so much for coming in, Gabe. Thank you. Now, reporter Marie Steinbach discusses the millennials' alternatives to a typical life plan. You start with preschool, go on to kindergarten, proceed to middle school, then high school, and hopefully college. After you graduate, you'll get a job and live happily working in the field of study that you chose in undergrad. A lot of Americans have followed this one-track path to happiness, something that has guaranteed the end result will be the magical American dream. But more recently, millennials have been seeking more and doing more things that are deemed as off the beaten path. While it is more necessary to have a college degree in today's economy, college graduates don't feel as if an entry-level position is worth the time and money they put into their degrees. Many recent graduates are now taking a gap year after they graduate college and are getting involved with international volunteer opportunities, a practice also referred to as voluntourism. Is this the new way of thinking for college graduates in this generation? Some of the organizations that college graduates are getting involved in are the Peace Corps, Teaching English Abroad, Teach for America, AmeriCorps, City Year, and the list goes on and on. 
Looking at the Peace Corps specifically, this year holds the record number of applicants that the organization has ever received with just over 20,000. With everything going on internationally, one might think that volunteering abroad would definitely not be the first choice of a college graduate, but it seems to be the opposite. Ashley Burgess, a 2008 MSU alum that chose to teach English in France and then join the Peace Corps after graduation, gives insight into one reason that students may be choosing this option. The job market was horrible when I graduated from undergrad, and so I knew that I had to take next steps, and they had to be long-range next steps to make sure that I would have the job I wanted in five or six years. College graduates have a lot of options. Some of them may be going right into the workforce, going back to school for more education, or choosing to join a volunteer organization after school. These are hard decisions that pose a lot of questions. Professor Dale Elsoff, the director of Spartans Without Borders, an MSU organization that offers international volunteering for alumni, answers one of these questions. What would an experience like the Peace Corps or other volunteering do to benefit your life that going right into the workforce wouldn't? One value of volunteering before jumping right into a career is that I feel like, especially the millennial generation, who has been through some really big stuff since they've grown up, I mean, 9-11, the recession, they've, they've come to maybe question the values that Americans are sometimes stereotyped as having. And so when you're going through college, you're largely checking off, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this. And it's very rare that somebody says, well, what do you value? Who are you? And by volunteering, you get to explore that a little bit. You get to hone the skills that you've learned in the classroom and actually put them to work in a, in a real world situation. And I think you're able to do a lot more problem solving and relating with different individuals, particularly if you're going abroad, people of, of different cultures that have very different perspectives and values. The millennial generation has been built on an individualized feel, asking questions of who each of them are as people, rather than just going through life and doing the best that they can. With increasing globalization, it may feel overwhelming to feel as if the world is at your fingertips, but not knowing who or what you want to do within it. Being put directly into the workforce of a 9-to-5 job may not be the answer to these higher standards that are being asked of the millennials, and more self-reflection may prepare them to be a better part of the workforce later in life. Um, it was a, a lot of self-reflection that I, I mean, I lived in a hut for two years with no electricity or running water, so I spent a lot of time thinking about my place in Senegal, what I was doing, and my place in the global development scheme, and really reflecting on the courses that I had taken at Michigan State. So it was really useful to see how you might study something in a class, and it might work out great. But in reality, there are so many flaws with the program or the problem or uh, so many different approaches that you could take. While volunteering and self-reflection is great for the volunteers themselves, what about the community or people they are helping? Does taking time out of your life plan to volunteer only for a short period make a difference for the community that you're helping? A lot of recent questions arise from groups that take mission trips for a week or two and go to third world countries or even communities in the United States to volunteer. When they are there, it takes time to learn what they are supposed to be doing, and by the time they are efficient enough at doing the work, it is time for them to go, leaving the community the same, if not worse, than when they found it. It may make the volunteers feel better, and they may be changed, but what about that community? You, will, you might have experience in a major transformation, but the impact that you make could be very limited. However, if, those, if the organization is 
putting together several of those short-term experiences based on a long-term relationship and they add consistency and a, a long-range plan, then the individuals may change, but if they, they're staying on track with the plan and working with the community, I think it can be a very different situation. If college graduates do make the decision to volunteer after college, does that make them a more marketable candidate for a job? A lot of medical schools mandate that you do something different to stand out from the crowd and to get experience that sets you apart from others that are vying for that same admission or position within a company. Volunteering may help you gain a unique experience, but it may depend on what field you're going into to see if it really counts. Just the act of volunteering doesn't necessarily make you more marketable for a job. But if you can say, here's what I learned, here's what I gained from that experience, that speaks to employers, especially outside of community development, more clearly than just saying, oh yeah, I, I did that. Comparing two graduates, one going right into the workforce and the other going abroad for two years, it may seem as if their views will be molded differently by their experiences. Some people may say that one experience is better than the other, but no one really knowing which is the better option, just what each individual gets out of their situation. I don't know, I think people will get, get more interesting jobs. And I, I hear all this, this characteristic about the millennial generation that we're interested in finding our passions and following them. And I think that volunteering is a good way to explore that and figure out sort of who you are and where you want to fit in the world. And so it's a good opportunity, sort of no strings attached, to let you explore the world, think about what you're doing. If you're working with a great organization, think about all these problems that are developing as the global society evolves, you know, climate change and all of these interconnected problems that we're facing, and then sort of come back and have a perspective to apply to the real world. I think ultimately there's that motivation to really want to, like Dale said, be part of something and be part of a global society and understand why we have all the problems that we have and how to solve them one day. Overall, whatever option a college graduate chooses is their own individual path. But as volunteering grows more and more, the millennial generation is keen on change and building things together, fixing problems, and coming together. This generation, the millennials, who we know will give for, they're looking for their passion, they will work for a cause, they are needing to be very entrepreneurial and not think, well, I'm going to work for this company, but what skills do I have to create a job, which are all very necessary things. But they're also the, the offspring of baby boomers, and that is my generation. And that's when the Peace Corps started. And that's when people became more concerned about the Earth with the first Earth Day in the early 1970s. And so, I hate to say us, we boomers have left the millennials a lot of big problems in the world. And during the time that baby boomers were born, President John F. Kennedy made an executive order to create the federal program that became the Peace Corps back in 1961. His famous words are still well known today. And so, my fellow Americans, Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. But maybe this quote isn't as one-sided as it may seem. It isn't black and white. Someone doesn't have to sacrifice their own personal growth while doing good. Rather, it may just come along with the process. So taking a step beyond your comfort zone, doing something outside of the lines may truly be beneficial to one's life success.
You're listening to Impact Exposure. For some high school students, school can be a dangerous place. A lot of gamers look at you as a game member, too. For some, just being in school can be a struggle. I wouldn't go to school. I didn't care about what my mom said. My mom would tell me, like, what are you doing for yourself? You're not doing nothing. But despite all the obstacles, inside every high school student is a graduate. People look down on you if you don't have a diploma. I want to graduate because they say I won't. Go to BoostUp.org and find out how you can help a friend, a son, a daughter finish high school. BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's Progressive Torch and Twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. Scholarships are something almost every college student has at least considered, if not pursued. There are, however, some scholarships that some students may have written off a little too early. Military scholarships. Right now we're joined with Staff Sergeant Alan Bennett and Sergeant First Class Brock Klukey. Hi, guys. How's it going? Hey, how's it going? Um, so you're here today to talk to us a little bit about uh, some scholarships you're offering, right? Correct. So why don't you uh, just... Break it break it down a little bit. What What's the scholarship program about? All right. Well, the scholarship is called the Health Profession Scholarship Program, and it is a program designed to allow students that are looking to go into medical, dental, veterinary, or optometry to be able to go to their respective schools and uh, have their school tuition paid for, as well as, you know, the monthly stipend that you get for the program. Okay. And what, what kinds of majors are these things uh looking for here? What, what what majors would be interested in these kinds of uh, scholarships? The, the scholarship appeals to pre-medical, um, pre-dental, um, first year and second year veterinary students, um, optometry students. Mostly medical kind of stuff? Correct. Um, so what, what does the scholarship offer to these students specifically? Okay, so for medical and dental students, or people that want to go into that, it offers up to a four-year scholarship um, for dental. Is if you're enrolled into a uh, ADA accredited DDS or DMD program, and uh, it will pay for your tuition in full, as well as give you a monthly stipend while you're in the program of two thousand one hundred and seventy-eight dollars every month. Um, you also get appointed as a second lieutenant while you're in the program. And once you graduate from the program and complete it, you will be appointed the rank of captain in the U.S. Army. So, so to be a part of this program, you do have to serve in the in the Army, right? That is correct. Correct. You do um, have a active duty obligation, um, depending on what type of program you wind up going into. And so, since this is medical, a lot of uh, a lot of the applicants of this program would be serving. Um, as doctors? Yes, they would like be that. considered Army physicians in the uh, medical corps or a dental officer in the dental corps. Um, if you don't mind me asking, why why are you guys offering the scholarship? What's your goal in uh, giving out this scholarship? 
the overall goal is to get qualified men and women and medical professionals to uh, to serve in the Army, um, also while helping them out with their education. Um, what what branch of military is this offered for? The, uh, this is the Army. Strictly the Army? Correct. Um, if somebody's listening right now and they sound pretty interested in uh, this kinds of things, what, what can they do to uh, get more involved or learn more? If uh, somebody listening is interested, the, the best way to contact us is at the Army Healthcare Recruiting Office, which is right here in East Lansing, uh, the phone number is 517-337-9163, and they can ask for anyone uh, in the office that, that takes their call. All right, is there anything else you guys want to say while you're on here about, about the uh, program? Yes. Um, I told you guys about the medical and dental portion of that uh, scholarship. There is also a veterinary uh, health profession scholarship. Um, it's a two, three-year scholarship program, and pretty much the same thing applies. It winds up paying for your tuition and giving you that monthly stipend of $2,178. Um, the minimum active duty obligation for that program is three years once you graduate. And we have the program for the optometry uh, and it's a two and three year scholarship program and everything applies does monthly stipend and the uh, active duty obligation for that is a one for one so for every year that they pay for your scholarship you give back by serving your country as an optometrist if somebody's listening and um, they're considering it if you were to talk to them individually what would you say well I would tell them to seriously consider this program because, for one, it can pay for your education. Two, it gives you an opportunity to serve your country and do it while you're performing a job that you love to do. Um, three, know that this scholarship is a very competitive scholarship. It's just not handed to anybody. You know, you got to have the GPA, the MCAT, GRE scores. Um, great letter of recommendations. And uh, lastly, I tell them, you know, this is a life-changing decision. It's very important um, that they know that before they actually move forward in trying to get the scholarship because you are going to school and you are going to serve your country at the same time. So it's a big decision, and we like for everybody to really consider that option and talk to, you know, a lot of influencers to see if this is the right choice. So that's what I pretty much tell them. All right, and I... Uh uh, one last thing would be, uh, is there is there a time frame for these uh, applications and for these programs? Yes, there is. Um, ideally, they want to apply before they start medical school. Um, they can also apply in their first year of medical school. Uh, but the best time to, to apply is in the spring and over the summer. That way, when school starts in the fall, um, their stipend can kick in, their tuition's paid for. Uh, but, the, I mean, there's no better time than to, to look the inf information than, than now. Um, that way they have the time to consider it, get the, the application put together, their letters of recommendation, um, their transcripts sent, you know, for, to, to be qualified. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming in, guys. You're welcome. No problem. To wrap up the show tonight, 
I sit down with Noah Filipiak to tell us about a 5K run that happens every year in Lansing to benefit Haiti after the devastating earthquake in 2010. Right now, I'm sitting down with Noah Filipiak, the founder of Lansing for Haiti, a uh, 5K race. Welcome, Noah. Thanks a lot. Glad to be here. So uh, this uh, 5K happens every year. This is the fifth annual, right? Yeah, we do the 5K on the anniversary of the 2010 earthquake. We try to hit the weekend nearest when the earthquake hit. This week, it's happening on the 10th, is that right? Yeah, so the 5K is coming up this Saturday, the 10th. It's at 2 o'clock p.m. Uh, it's over at Great Lakes Christian College, which is on the west side of Lansing. And this is in reference, uh, this is a, a uh, charity run for uh, Haiti. That's right. the 2010 earthquake. Yeah, yeah. After the earthquake hit, there was a lot of, I mean, everybody remembers that I think uh, there was a lot of pictures up. It was in the news. You know, the NFL was doing a big push to donate. You could send in $10 text to the Red Cross, you know, that sort of thing. And so as a pastor, there was a lot of push uh, in my church and in churches around to say, hey, what are we going to do about this, this crisis? It's most people... I had never realized how close Haiti really was to the United States. It's about an hour, hour and a half flight from Miami. Um, and so the 5K was one of our, well, I, would, I should say Lansing for Haiti really was our response uh, to those questions of, hey, what are we going to do? And then once we formed Lansing for Haiti, the 5K became our primary fundraiser for um, helping Haiti after the earthquake. That was uh, five years ago. Uh, and at the time, the even the year following, there was a lot of buzz about trying to help out Haiti, but um, I think a lot of people would be a little bit surprised to hear that there's some more fundraising going on for Haiti. Um, are the conditions still really bad? Yeah, and that's a great question. It's a great conversation, really. Um, so before the earthquake ever hit, Haiti was the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. So they had a lot of issues and problems. And when I say issues and problems, yeah, you can talk about it on a political level and those sorts of things. But what we're dealing with is just your everyday family, your everyday child, right? You know, you got to picture yourself if you were just born in this environment. You didn't have anything to do with it yet. Uh, you're, you're in an environment where prior to the earthquake hitting, there, it's an immensely vulnerable place. It's a vulnerable place to be a child. It's a vulnerable place to be a family. Uh, there's a long history of why that is, um, starting back in the 1800s and regime after regime of dictators. And uh, just I can go into some of those things that create some of those environments um, that had that happen. But, but the point is, then the earthquake hit. So you have this country that's a mess with infrastructure already. There's been a lot of corrupt governments that have been there. Uh, and all of a sudden, it's, it was like 230,000 people die in this earthquake. Um, the USA Today article that was in the paper last week said that's um, picture one out of three people in New York City dying, like or all they or they were using an international example of like Dublin, Ireland. The whole city dies, you know. So then you have to wonder, it was already in the state that it was in, and then this amount of people die. Um, let alone the buildings that were leveled, houses that were leveled, all these sorts of things. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot of mess there to be cleaned up for sure. So you've been to Haiti, right? Yes, I've been there twice. And when did you go? I went uh, 2010 uh, in March, so it had been two months after the earthquake, and then I went again in 2011, uh, which had been in May, so about a year, year and a half after the earthquake. Went with World Relief both times. Uh, World Relief is the organization that we support. 100% of the money we raise from our race 
goes directly to World Relief's office in Haiti. So with that year uh, separation there, uh, what was what was the progress looking like? Yeah, you could see some progress. Um, so the first year, you, there were tent cities like everywhere. So um, according to the USA Today article, there were 1.5 million people living in tent cities. And so at that at the time of the earthquake, after the earthquake hit, by tent cities, if you haven't seen the pictures, you could just you could Google them, and they're really tarp cities, is what they are. I mean, um, a lot of these were just tarps that were given, donated, these sorts of things. Um, so from year one, uh, from from I would say you know year zero to year one, when I came back, you could see a little more green space, um, but a lot of things seem so. So you could see some things being rebuilt. You know, the first time we went, everything was rubble. So we were in Port-au-Prince, the capital city where the most buildings are, and there was nothing new being built. It was simply clean up. Uh, it was encouraging in year two. You could see some new buildings, new bricks being laid. Uh, you, you could see some green space. So you got a picture like in Lansing or East Lansing. Every green space you know of, every park, every nice area on campus where there's a nice lawn filled with tarps and people living in those tarps. It's pretty sad, really. Um, now, I guess uh, the number that the USA Today article used is there's 85,000 people living uh, in the tent cities. So there's kind of a good and a bad side to that. Um, the good news is, wow, in five years, there's been a lot of aid given to Haiti, and they've gone from 1.5 million people in tent cities to 85,000. The bad news is pretty obvious. That's still 85,000 people living in tarps with their families through rain and all kinds of weather. Um, five years after the earthquake, so there's definitely still some work to be done. And that was uh, now year five? Year five, yeah, year five. As of like last week, the count would be 85,000 people living in these 10 cities still. So what's some of the progress that we're still looking to make with these donations that you're uh, anticipating from the run? Yeah, well, what I love about what World Relief does is they work through the local churches in Haiti, and these are churches that have been there for a really long time, they're really embedded in the community. And so what World Relief does, instead of going from a political or governmental level, they go from a grassroots level. Their mission statement is to target the most vulnerable. So what these churches are able to do, I, got, I was able to visit many of these churches, uh, churches in the slums, churches out in the country, um, but they know exactly where the most vulnerable people are. They already have those existing relationships. And so World Relief takes their programs that they do, which are programs that are designed and proven to get people out of poverty for the long haul. So there's two types of ways of helping someone, right? You can, there's those phrases we hear, like give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. Uh, teach him to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. But then there's also the, the additional, um, you got to make sure there's a pond for him to fish in as well, right? Um, so a lot of aid that's given, been given to Haiti over the years has been give a man a fish, and what Give a Man a Fish does is it teaches someone to be dependent. And so, um, you know, Haitian uh, nationals that are, you know, experts on Haiti and have studied their country, they'll tell you that a culture of dependency is a problem because of the amount of handout aid that has happened. Um, that's the opposite of what World Relief does. They only do things uh, that are sustainable. And really, it's, it's not a handout. It's a hand up. It's a matter of um, – so, for example – uh, microfinance, they do a lot of with agricultural businesses. So they help people start farms, they teach them how to farm, and then they'll give them loans to grow their farming business. Once they pay back that loan, they're able to build their farming business. 
And so it's the person and the family that's then able to support themselves. World Relief was just along the way to be able to get them to that point. So that's directly where the money that we raise goes. So hopefully we'll raise anywhere from five to $10,000. Um, that's no you know, number in the billions like the U.S. might have given Haiti. But you think about what five to $10,000 can do when it's given out over small loans um, to a community to help the most vulnerable. It really can make a huge difference. So are, are the entry fees to this race, are, what, are they what's going to the donations? Yeah, so every dollar of the entry fee, once we, you know, we, we give out T-shirts and things like that for each runner, but uh, we don't keep any of the money. All of that money from the entry fees goes straight to, the, uh, to World Relief. We also have some business sponsors that are contributing, so all the logos on the back of the T-shirts, all those businesses um, supported this venture as well, and 100% of that money uh, will go down. We're actually doing a new thing this year. If any listeners have uh, friends or family that are live outside of the Lansing area where you can run or walk a 5K from home. Um, so I have a friend in Anchorage, Alaska, for example, that's at 2 o'clock on Saturday. He's going to get out. He's going to run a 5K, and he donated. We have a special link for that. Um, we'll read off his, uh, his city from the starting line that we have people in these cities running with us as well right now, and that money as well will all go uh, towards World Relief's work in Haiti. So uh, why a run? Runs are, are pretty common with uh, donations um, and, and, and foundations for uh, charity. Uh, what's, what's the benefit of having a run for this? Uh, one of the reasons is I'm a runner. I ran uh, cross-country in college and just do road races and things like that. And uh, road races are becoming more and more popular. Uh, you know, um, a good way to get in shape. A lot of people are doing couch to 5K programs. A 5K is a very accessible uh uh, distance, you know, Playmakers Store in Okemos is a great resource here in the Lansing area that's really been supportive of our cause and just kind of builds a really good running community around here. I think a uh, an even better question is why a run in the middle of January in Michigan, which is crazy. Uh, <laughs> I blame my friend Frank uh, was on our planning team when we started, and he said, "Let's do it on the anniversary of the earthquake," and we all said, "Great, that'll be unique." So here we are running in the middle of January, but that actually adds a fun element to our race. Uh, we have this really silly mascot that costume that we bought. It's a abominable snowman, and he has fun with the kids, and you know we just kind of have a good time with it. So it's wonderful. Um, if somebody's listening and they want to sign up uh, or somehow get involved, yeah. how can they? Yeah, the best way to do that is just go to LansingForHaiti.com. That's the word for, F-O-R. So LansingForHaiti.com, and all the links will be right there to sign up for the race, uh, give donations, um, watch video of our trips, photos, all those sorts of things. Awesome. Thanks for stopping by, Noah. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. That's all for the show tonight. You can listen to this episode as well as all other episodes of Exposure on our website at www.impact89fm.org. I'd like to thank reporters Marie Steinbach and Stephen Rich, as well as our general manager Ed Glazer and our station manager Gabriella Saldivia. 
Thanks for listening tonight. I've been your host, Quinn Hoffman, and this has been Exposure on the Impact 89FM. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure.